Welcome to the third year of our podcast produced by the School of Humanities and Social Science in the College of Human and Social Futures at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. In 2021, our Human Experience podcast will present conversations with our writers, historians, literary studies scholars, sociologists and anthropologists. In these discussions, we will explore the secret to successful creative writing, the international field of crime fiction, the intriguing history of war corpses, the state of religion in Australia and in global perspective, the health and well-being of young Indigenous Australians, the experiences of sex workers and exploitation, and finally, what does it mean to talk about a global history of Australia? We are excited to speak to some of the leading researchers in our school about their current work and future directions. So join us for these thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science scholars who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. Welcome to the Our Human Experience podcast. My name is Professor Catherine Colborne. Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Jesper Goodale. Jesper is an academic in the School of Humanities and Social Science who has a research interest in crime fiction as a genre. He's an excellent communicator, academic and leader in the school and he's held many workshops for our PhD candidates on writing. Jesper is currently researching how crime fiction as a genre translates globally and his previous research has focused around crime fiction in the UK and United States markets. Crime fiction today is the most global literary genre. It has reached almost every country and has a huge readership across the world. Jesper has researched how this genre is topping the charts around the world and his book The Rutledge Companion to Crime Fiction offers innovative approaches to the classics of the genre as well as groundbreaking mappings of emerging themes and trends. And in this episode, we discuss how classic crime fiction models are being appropriated and given a local flavour around the world. Thanks for joining us, Jesper. Thanks very much, Cathy. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's a great pleasure to, to be here and to, um, to, to get to talk about my research. So, Jesper, you're an international academic. I'd be really grateful if you could start by telling us about your academic career, where you studied and how you developed your interest and in areas of expertise. Sure. So my background is Danish. Um, I studied at the University of Copenhagen, did my PhD there. Um, I went to um, Cambridge after my PhD, first uh, on a, on a one-year visiting research fellowship and then ended up staying there for five years as a, as a postdoc. And then in 2010, I came out here to Newcastle uh, as a senior lecturer then and now uh, an associate professor. Um, I, just in terms of expertise, I see myself as a literary historian and um, sort of in the past I've worked mainly on um, literature around 1800 um, and, you know, um, I'm being generous here, sort of 1750 to 1850 or so, um, but really um, I'm not a, a, 
a period-specific academic. I'm someone who's working on topics and themes more than uh, specific periods. And much of the work I've done has focused in various ways on mobility um, in, in, in literature um, in a number of different, different ways. We, we can talk more about that as we, as we go. Uh, I, I can't, can't help coming back to it, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by mobility studies in my research as well. So thinking about your transition to Australia, having studied in Europe and then going to Cambridge in, in England, what was it like coming to work in Australia? Did you notice big differences in academic culture? Yeah, uh, there, there are big differences. But I think um, as well it's worth saying that my, my perception uh, of that is perhaps skewed by the stage of career of where, where I was. Um, when I still lived and worked overseas, when I was at Cambridge, I had um, research funding um, and plenty of it kind of thing. I had my own research to do and I could go to all these events or concerts and, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis almost. Um, obviously, as a tenured academic here at Newcastle, it's a different life in many ways. It, it, it's um, a, a life with more responsibility kind of thing and deadlines and performance uh, benchmarks to reach, etc. So that, there's a difference in, in the career stage. Uh, as it were, but obviously there 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 are, there are um, you know cultural differences as as well. Cambridge is a wonderful place in the sense of of the intellectual life that's happening there. It's hard to replicate, I think, in other places. Um, but I want to say as well that I'm really happy about the decision um, that my wife and I made made to you know, come out to Australia. It was magical in a in a sense. We both got jobs within a month of each other, which is um, something you can't really rely on today. And um, it turned out to be um, something that was um, really good for us and for me as an academic as well. It's been very educational and, and, and fruitful. Yeah, I'm, I'm so uh, proud really that the humanities and social science disciplines uh, host a number of international academics, so we're lucky to have you here. So my own experience was as someone who studied both history and English, I did a combined honours degree, and making that choice or decision to choose one over the other to pursue as a career, because now I'm a historian, was quite difficult. But are the disciplines actually so different, do you think, in, in terms of your kind of interest in both areas? Yeah, it's a good good question. I, I guess, um, you know, boringly, I'm going to say yes and no. Um, I think discipline boundaries are are there um, in part to enable more complex scholarship, um, but at the same time, of course, they're taking apart and 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 siloing things that really belong together in 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 um, in way in, in in important ways and 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 things that need to be looked at holistically as well. So you know, forms of human self-expression. I like the title of this uh, blog series, "Human Experience." That's what we're all working on in in from our you know various discipline perspectives. Um, so um, you know, I think literature and, and history can can you know converge or, or diverge depending on, on who you are and what what your interest is, um, kind of thing. At the same time, um, I guess I, I wanted to say that um, the question is perhaps asked in a slightly different way in literary studies because literature, as our object of study, is inherently interdisciplinary. I mean, literature f- you know forges connections with psychology and with politics and with uh, sociology and with history in various ways it offers representations of different aspects of the social work uh, world world and um, in that sense literature doesn't respect disciplinary boundaries so um literary scholars of course need need to you know pursue literature in in that sense and not just be formalistic kind of thing and you know go where literature goes in, in a sense 
When we did the, um, the, the Round List Companion to Crime Fiction last year, we introduced a long section with 20 chapters called Interfaces, um, and all the chapters have the form of crime fiction and something, some crime fiction and migration, crime fiction and digital media, crime fiction and narcotics, uh, and so on. And I'm really interested in that, in that, in that and, um, that nexus between literature and the aspect of the world that it's trying to represent, or engage with, or, or challenge, or whatever it is it's doing. Uh, and that's how I, I um, see literature to, to a large degree. And if you want to understand that, that end, again, you have to work in an interdisciplinary way. And what I've, what I've done in my past research, especially the work I've done on mobility and movement control, is to, um, to draw in political philosophy and um, social history and legal history all sort of mixed and matched with um, traditional forms of formalistic literary analysis. Um, so in that sense, my interest is an interdisciplinary one. Mm, no, thank you for that answer. And before we get on to mobility studies, I'm curious about the the interfaces section in that handbook. Was that something the publishers were really keen that you did or did you come up with that as an editorial team? No, that's very much something we wanted to do. We didn't want um, crime fiction to be presented as, as just um, um, a list of tropes or devices or moves or for formula. Um, we thought that that was a little bit um, boring, and we all, we all, the editorial group, all believed very strongly in in crime fiction as a as a way of in interpreting the social world and 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 um, you know challenging certain inequities, etc. And and that's um, something we wanted to bring out in the book, and and it's a first, so we're proud of that one. Mm, that's really interesting and very exciting. Thank you. So you'll remember we've spoken before about my interest in mobility studies and I think it takes different forms in different disciplines across history and sociology and so on. And I've, I've been encountering many different kinds of academics with an interest in mobility. Can you talk a little bit more about how mobility functions as a concept in literary studies? Uh, in in various ways, I think. I mean, there's a number of books and and and, and some scholarship out there on on sort of means of transportation, whether it's the uh, the 18th century carriage or the car or the rail 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 road kind of thing, and that's something that's been done quite quite a lot. Um, so transportation mobility in that physical sense uh, is important. I'm interested in in the mobility of literature as well, in in, in transnational circulation and exchange, and that's something that really plays into my crime fiction research, uh, in a in a big way. Um, I'm interested as well in in sort of repositioning crime fiction as a as a mobile genre. It's often seen as as a, a bit staid, a bit sort of fixed to an an Anglosphere context. I'd like to to show that 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 crime fiction is fluid and and constantly move somewhere else so you can't quite quite fixate it main project in mobility um in in the area of mobility has to do with mobility and and passports and movement control um i don't know if now is a good time to talk more about that or yeah no do tell me about that so as a historian that appeals to me because obviously historians have been quite interested in restricting uh, or histories of when people's movement was restricted and passports were invented yes. to sort of monitor movement so i'm interested in what you have to say about that yeah, um, I'm working on a book project um, which is about mobility and movement control in the European novel from um, about 1750 to 1850. Just to give you a sense of the, um, the, the key argument there, if you look at the history of the novel, going all the way back to antiquity and up until sort of the mid-18th century, it's all about mobility. Um, authors seemingly couldn't really entertain the idea of writing a novel without sending the, the heroes out on the, the open road, um, places where adventures could be encountered kind of thing. Um, 
just staying at home is is not really an option. And in a sense, the the term novel has to do with a, a newness that that can't be encountered at home necessarily. So um, the the form of the novel traditionally, historically, was about mobility to a large degree, but that changed seemingly around. Um, um, the mid 18th century. There are exceptions, I should say, as well, be- because that's you know part of it. And I could go into that, but but I, th- as a general picture, that that does hold true. And I'm interested in that that structural transformation that happens to the novel at the end of the the 18th century, and uh, and that that is really sort of established in a in a fairly sort of firm way in the in the, ni- in the 19th century. Um, it's been um, sort of theorized as a domestication of the novel or an urbanization of the novel or as the advent of a new realism uh, of sorts. Um, but for me, what's decisive here is that that, is that that traditional reliance, dependency on mobility doesn't uh, really um, seem realistic anymore to, to authors from the late 19th, 18th century. And in a number of prominent novels of that period, you really see um, an engagement with um, what has replaced that um, systems of movement control that emerged sort of around the French Revolution in particular. So I'm, I'm arguing in my, in my book, um, using an, a number of different examples, um, that um, this structural transformation can really only be explained by looking at the rise of modern forms of passport control um, in the late um, 18th century. And as you know, the passport has a very long history. It goes back to uh, antiquity as well in various forms. But um, the use of passports as a modern form of, of governance really only um, takes off in a serious way um, th- over the course of the 18th century. And the French Revolution is really key in establishing modern passport regimes um, in, the, in the sense of um, you know, movement control systems that can't easily be avoided, that really d- does regulate movement on a, on a large sort of territorial scale. And as I see it, um, the rise of the passport invalidates that um, dependency, um, that mobility focus of um, the, mo- uh, the, the, uh, the historical uh, you know, forms of the novel. It, f- it forces authors to come up with alternative storylines that acknowledge and respond to the fact that mobility is no longer um, freely available to all, but is, is sort of um, um, constrained and controlled in various ways. Mm. Oh no! Thank you so much for that. Yeah, and uh, not only have you taken me back to my, you know, enjoyment of studying literature as a student, <laughs> but also to thinking about novels I've read, like Jim Crace's book Harvest, which is about, you know, mobile peoples in a, an early period earlier than the one you're describing in England, yeah. and and grifters and people who move across landscapes. So just fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of vagab- vagabonds, and vagabonds, vagrants in, yeah. in in the novel p- you know, prior to um, to 1750. That's right. Yeah. So, so out uh, somehow. Yeah, that's that. right. No, fascinating. Mm. Thank you. Mm. So um, let's talk about crime fiction. When did you become interested in crime fiction, or or how? Yeah, it's. Um, it, I always get asked that by students when I teach crime fiction, and I always want to say that I, I, I have um, a lifelong passion for crime fiction, but that's not actually the case. Um, I like, obviously, I like crime fiction, but um, you know, as a, as a student going through university, I had very elitist tastes, and I, I wouldn't have touched a crime novel with a with a ten pole. 10 feet pole or whatever the expression is. But then, um, you know, shortly after I, g- I got my PhD, I, d- I, I had to teach a course on, on early 20th century literature. And, and uh, one of the set te- texts was Dashiell Hammett's uh, The Maltese Falcon. And I was, I, was, I was just, you know, captivated by that novel. And I was really interested in, in, in how complex it was and how much I had to say about it. Uh, because the, f- the, f- the fear, I think, of 
literary scholars is always that that some of the the go-to methods don't really apply all that well to popular literature and I've, i found that that wasn't really a problem there and it was a good experience so when i came to newcastle i i immediately um designed this new course crime fiction which i've taught a number of times um before and and i've I've then developed a, a research interest out of that. So in a sense, it's, this is teaching-led research, you might say, even though I, today I have a, a research agenda that's very independent of my teaching as well. So. Yeah, I like those stories about how your teaching influences your research. I think that's very interesting. And uh, in terms of the study of crime and detective fiction, where are we at now? As a, a sort of, Is it a, a strong field of inquiry? How, how is it placed in your mind? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I want to express this in a way that's not too combative, I, 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 I guess. Um, I think the field is a, a, at an inflection point almost. If you go back uh, you know, 20 years or 30 years, there was a certain staidness to, um, to crime fiction studies. There's a very strong sense that, that, that crime fiction was popular literature and, and, and didn't really warrant being read in the same way as, as literary texts. And there was this, um, you know, um, standard historical narrative that that goes from Edgar Allan Poe until the present day, and it's very focused on, on the English language, um, etc. And I think the the field is really very rapidly evolving away from that. And there's always been great scholarship, of course, in the area, but today it seems that some of the basic premises and assumptions about crime fiction are changing, very quickly. So I was talking earlier about how you know crime fiction is a fluid genre that 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 uh, innovates and is really defined by that willingness to go to new places all the time and and that's one example of that and um this um, new um i guess awareness of crime fiction as a global genre is another example of, of how the field is evolving away from a an anglocentric model yeah, and that leads me nicely into the next uh, point, re- which is uh, talking a little bit about your efforts with colleagues around the world to establish a world crime fiction field as a field of research or, or to, to push it further. Um, and I also kind of want to signal that in that, I'm just interested in something you just said, wondering about um, how questions of gender and ethnicity are starting, and sexuality, those sorts of categories of analysis are starting to shape that world field. But, you know, you take us in whatever direction you like. Uh, um, that's a good question as well. I, I, I can answer that very briefly. Briefly, first, I mean, crime fiction has al- always had a deep um, interest in gender and sexuality, and ethnicity as well. It's got got a, a, a history of misogyny. It's got a history of racism going back to the 19th century, um, and and that that is certainly being challenged and on on unpacked um, in in really um, interesting ways at at the moment and has been for for a long time. Um, for me, um, my interest is is um, in those areas as as well, but but um, primarily from a a global perspective from the point of view of, of world crime fiction. So I'm working with um, my good colleague Alistair Rose from this university and Stuart King from Monash and, and, and we've got a number of of partners that we're working with, with across the world as well and, and we're working on defining world literature, world crime fiction I should say, as a, as a, as a new paradigm in crime fiction studies. And we're, tr- we're trying to address some of the conceptual and theoretical problems that comes with that territory, and they're, they're huge, as you would expect. Or, you know, a global scale is, is something that can't easily be achieved. It requires new ways of thinking about literature, new ways of working, new ways of collaborating as well, um, which I'm finding really interesting, and I'm, I'm enjoying that tremendously. I, I guess our starting point is that 
that um, crime fiction is a universally popular form. It's really interesting to see how crime fiction is written and and published and sold and and read and reviewed and translated in almost every country in the world and and in almost every country um, it ranks among the most popular um, genres. So it's really a global phenomenon in a way that I, I, I think has has no parallels. Um, um, at all, in fact, and and at the same time, crime fiction circulates with with great ease. It seems that that it's easy enough to to translate um, crime fiction, and readers um, across the world seem unconcerned with having to pick up uh, a translated book and reading about a different place. In fact, it's a, a an attraction. Uh, you're reading a book set in Thailand or in in uh, Latin America, etc. is is a selling point um, today. So so the field is 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 unique in that sense as well. But crime fiction scholarship is only catching up with that at the moment, um, and uh, much of the scholarship that's out there is still assuming um, that crime fiction is happening, if not only in the Anglosphere, then at least at the national level primarily. And what we're trying to, um, I guess, suggest is that crime fiction is inherently a transnational phenomenon shaped by its uh, international circulation more than its adherence to certain national patterns and, and, and formats. I can talk a lot more about that, but... Um, well, well, it occurs to me that when you say people are quite happy to pick up the genre, no matter where it's set, uh, is translating into other cultural forms, such as television series. I mean, everybody's endlessly watching really interesting television series that yeah. are, you know, are crime fiction motivated. So um, I see exactly what you're saying. Um, I, th- I think I'm interested, though, in the differences between world literature and world crime fiction. You started out by talking about your project with colleagues to position world crime fiction within that kind of world literature paradigm. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, world crime fiction is an extension of sorts of the field of, of world literature studies that, that you know, is 20 years old or, or so in its most recent form. But uh, world crime fiction is also, also very, very distinct, I, I think, from world literature. World literature has a, a history, and, and that actually goes back a couple of hundred years, um, of being um, you know, a bit elitist. So um, we haven't quite um, gotten rid of that assumption that world literature is the best and the standout literature from every country in the world, sort of the the Olympics of, of literature. Um, that doesn't really apply in the same way to, to crime fiction, so it's distinct in that way. But also world literature is, is a lot about um, um, what happens in terms of our understanding of literary texts when they circulate across borders. And the assumption is always that that poses a problem, a hermeneutical problem, in in the sense that we need to interpret and understand cultural otherness. And the beauty of world crime fiction is that it does that work for us, in a sense, by using international forms, uh, forms with international recognizability, kind of thing like the police procedural, but does that in a way that inf- inflects the genre as well and, and, and makes it speak to, um, to local conditions on the ground, as it were, both local literary traditions but also local issues and concerns, you know, what people have on their minds, as it were, in, in those various places around the world. So yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that work of mediation is undertaken, in a sense, by, by the novels themselves, the authors themselves, to, to some degree. So there's another difference. Yeah, that's really powerful, isn't it? I can totally see how that works in terms of interpreting mm. the value of crime fiction as a world literature. Um, and, uh, sorry, go on. Uh, I, d- I just want to say that, that of course, of course that, that there are a number of specific questions um, that we're posing as well that are distinct. Um, World crime fiction, and I think that that is another difference to world 
literature is, is, is a unified field, in a sense. It, it's a global field and not just uh, an amal amalgamation of national literatures that may or may not circulate, kind of thing. But crime fiction is global in that sense um, of being a, a, a truly international format. And you know some of the, the, the questions we're posing posing have have to do, for example, with um, you know f identifying and, and and gaining recognition for alternative <laughs> beginnings of crime fiction. So in China, for example, there's a crime fiction tradition that goes back to the fourth century um, A.D. and it's still alive in some ways today, and 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 still sort of is adapted for television in China, etc. There's a, a crime fiction tradition going back, uh, you know, a thousand years in Japan as well, and in the Arab world, and and in various European countries as well, and and um, you know, understanding crime fiction as a as a as a poly poly polygenetic field with many different starting points is is important, I think. Um, the you know, second thing I wanted to mention is is uh, wh what I'd call first contacts. What happens when Western Anglo, you know, sphere um, crime fiction formats are, are exported and adapted in new contexts? You know, typically historically that happened at some point in the early nineteenth century with translations of Sherlock Holmes and a few other select um, um, English or British or American authors. Uh, and that then gave way to uh, what we would call pseudo-translational production, where, where authors sort of pretend to be writing translated novels because they have more prestige. And then finally, you have um, a, a genuine local tradition emerging kind of thing. Um, um, that, that form of transnational exchange that takes place uh, via translation, often in the form of, of international crime fi fiction collections, publishing collections, is really interesting as as well. Um, the contemporary hybridity of crime fiction uh, is a, a major focal point um, here. So the various forms of um, blendings and mergers that that take place between different local literary traditions and and sort of Western forms, often that's seen in terms of, of simply replacing the, the scene with something else. So adding snowy landscapes, for example, palm trees, etc. Et but um, I, I guess we're, we're trying to argue that, that this hybridity runs a whole lot deeper and it, it really um, um, leads to the emergence of new forms of crime fiction altogether. And then finally, and, and uh, I'm sorry to uh, give such a long answer, but finally, um, this um, transnational perspective, this global perspective of crime fiction also forces us to revisit the um, crime fiction tradition in English and look at the various ways in which that was shaped by transnational exchange as well. And that can go back all the way to Edgar Allan Poe, sort of the murders in the Rue Morgue is already a transnational crime story in the sense that it's written by American but set in France with a French detective and it envisions Paris as a center of global exchange in various ways. So the transnationalism is already there and that, that uh, lives on today. And one of the most interesting Phenomena in my mind, and I've written about this recently, is uh, what I'd call you know, foreignizations written in English by British or American authors, but set in foreign places and featuring you know uh, foreign detectives or you know crime crime novels set in in Bangkok or in Scandinavia or in Rus Russia or in China, but written very very much by English authors for an, for an English language audience. That's fascinating. Um, and a good example of how deep that transnationalism 
transactionism runs. Mm, mm. Yeah, look, I think our listeners to this podcast are, are going to have all sorts of new ways of reading detective and crime fiction when they when they go back out. Um, so, Jesper, what about in the Australian context? Um, can you say a little bit about how you think crime fiction is, where it's happening, how strong is it in the Australian readership context? Yeah. Um, so there's boom, a crime fiction boom happening at the moment in Australia, and it's great to see. It's it's really um, produced some some wonderful authors. Um, I see two different tendencies. Um, they may not be equally popular on an international scale, but they're equally, um, I think, significant, especially coming from uh, the point of view of world crime fiction. So one of them is is Outback Noir. Um, it's become a big deal. Recently, uh, Jane Harper has been immensely successful internationally. Chris Hammer as well and a few others. Um, there was a movie adaptation of The Dry uh, coming out just um, earlier this year. Um, so Outback Noir, um, it is a good example of what world crime fiction does if it wants to be successful it takes um, a very um, specific place and turns that into a scene of crime and uses um, you know crime as a way of describing and, and evoking that place for an international audience and of course uh, Australian writers have done that very successfully one might ask even you know I, I really I really love um, Jean Harper I think she's a wonderful wonderfully gifted author but one might ask as well what kind of representation it is of Australia when it all comes down to it. Is it one that's sanitized in a sense or, or whitewashed in, in various ways? Is it one that shows us um, a traditional Australia as opposed to a, a modern urban metropolitan Australian? The, uh, d- these are, are, are big questions, I think, and, and they need to be, be explored further. But the other um, trend, uh, as I see it, is um, um, indigenous Australian crime fiction. There aren't all that many authors, um, but there's some good ones um, there. There's Nicole Watson and Philip McLaren and perhaps Melissa Lukashenko as well. Um, It's a really interesting example and case study, I think, of how Western Anglo-centric forms of crime fiction are adapted and appropriated when exported into a completely different setting. Um, Of course, crime fiction is often about law and order, there's a certain solidarity with the law and with the police. Um, It's about rationality, it's about individual guilt and closure, and Aboriginal authors often can't do very much with those concepts. Um, They go against their most fundamental experience, um, as it were. Um, So uh, Indigenous crime fiction authors have to reinvent the genre in in quite fundamental ways, and I'm really interested in in how that's done and how they, they manage to turn genres of formats with a, a history of, as, as we talked about before, of misogyny and racism kind of thing into um, if effectively, for lack of a better term, a weapon in a political strug- struggle for, for land rights and recognition and sovereignty, etc. Mm, no, that's really so interesting. And uh, just commenting speculatively, really, I think I've often wondered whether Australia has more of a fascination with true crime and and crime fiction than other countries. But in some ways, what you're telling me is that it's much more uh, international and that the nuances are where we find cultural difference. So that's a very interesting kind of point. So as we draw to an end, um, you've mentioned great collaboration with other colleagues, both at Newcastle, uh, at other universities in Australia. What's next for your research in this field? So um, at the moment, I'm, I'm finishing with my uh, research par- partners and a co-edited volume on world crime fiction. It's the Cambridge Companion to 
world crime fiction and and the deadline is only a couple of months away so so that's where my mind is at at the moment uh, we need to to run towards the you know, sprint towards the finishing line there um after that i want to um and this is not about crime fiction i want to re- return to my my book project on mobility and movement control in in um in the european novel hopefully you're know, finishing that in a, a not too distant future but longer term, what I'm really interested in is to, um, I guess, and this is a huge project, um, is to do some kind of world history of crime fiction um, that f- in a fundamental way um, challenges the, um, the, the, the t- traditional historical account of crime fiction from Edgar Allan Poe until the police procedural today. And um, you know, recognizes all the various different forms of crime fiction around the world, not as derivative and, and second-rate kind of thing, but as, as true um, forms, genuine forms of, of crime fiction. There's a whole world out there of crime fiction waiting for us to, um, to discover it, in a sense. I'm really interested in that. Oh, that's so exciting. So thank you so much for your time today, Jesper. I don't know whether you've um, fully embraced uh, that crime fiction as a, as a reader. Do you read crime fiction in your spare time or is it Yeah, I, 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 I do today. I, I, it's hard somehow hard to distinguish between free time and work time for us all, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I, I, I read crime novels. I watch crime shows on, on Netflix as, as well and other, other places. Uh, Lupin and Babylon Berlin and... Um, um, the bridge and and so on. So uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I do that. I'm and and I'm I'm loving it today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So yeah, from from the mouth of the expert, uh, sleeping, breathing, eating crime fiction. So thank you very much, Jesper, and uh, we look forward to uh, putting our podcast out for our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me.